They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host. Uh, my guest today I had uh, back on episode 59, I think, which was uh, 18 months ago or more. Um, and we talked a little bit about this book. I think he was just about to finish it up back then and uh, promised to have him back on uh, when he did. Uh uh, have it done. And I've read most of it. I didn't quite finish it. It's called Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, 1607 to 1849. And of course, I'm talking about Patrick Newman, uh, assistant professor of uh, economics at Florida Southern College and a fellow of the Mises Institute. Welcome back, Patrick. Welcome. Thank, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, I really enjoyed talking to you last time and uh, was excited about this book. Um, cause I'm kind of a, 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 I hate the term history buff. No one uses the term buff except when they talk about history, but I really like this, uh, period, uh, the early period of American history. I don't know as much about the Jacksonian age, which I'm excited, uh, to talk about. And, uh, I actually just helped, uh, Dave Benner, um, who he's, he writes some for Mises Institute and 10th Amendment Center. I helped him edit his recent book on, uh, Thomas Paine called Thomas Paine, a lifetime of radicalism. And so uh, there's some overlap in there talking about, you know, the mach machinations of Madison and, and Hamilton and, and uh, uh, Paine's thoughts on that. But there's a whole lot of stuff in here that uh, uh, again, I, I didn't know, and I kind of know a lot about all this uh, era. So I really uh, appreciate you writing this book. What, uh, what made you want to focus on this topic and start with, all this period, all the way back to 1607. Yeah, so <clears throat> I had, uh, after writing, excuse me, not writing, after editing The Progressive Era by uh, Murray Rothbard, which came out in 2017, I was approached uh, by Hunter Lewis, who's a prominent donor of the Mises Institute, if I'd be interested in writing a book on the history of crony capitalism in the United States, basically covering from the beginning of the United States, so you think of 1607, to the modern era, uh, <clears throat> at the time, I was working on Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5. I edited that one as well, which came out in 2019. And um, after basically working on that, I started working on this book. So I, I, I agreed. I said, absolutely, I'd love to do this. Uh, I thanked Hunter Lewis for his support. And as I was working, I, I sort of devising my overarching narrative of American history, I realized that I, I would want to split it up into uh, you know, multiple books, uh, each of them kind of covering a different theme and, of course, different time periods. 
and I was fresh off of editing Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty and really had a, a deep knowledge of the first five volumes. So I, I knew what Rothbard wanted to cover in the 1790s and the early 1800s. He never, unfortunately, he never wrote uh, very much on that part of American history. But anyway, so I just concentrated on that period, really kind of continuing the Rothbardian narrative and just uh, focusing on cronyism, these special interest policies, really hammering uh, the, the point home. He got all these special interests involved and uh, I tried to show that this was applicable to early America. Uh, particularly during the, the founding era, Hamilton, Jefferson, Washington, uh, and so on. And basically, I, I, I wrote the book, and right now I'm actually working on the next book, sort of over the next hundred years or so of American history. Okay, so take it up to like through World War II, maybe. Yeah, that's that's the plan. I, I want to get to the end of World War II and basically the creation of a worldwide American global empire, so to speak, with the Marshall Plan and the IMF and Bretton yep. Woods and, and all of that good stuff that we, we all we, we all love so much. Right? Yeah. And there's all kinds of cronyism wrapped up uh, there. Um, so you talk about one world empire. Um, this book starts uh, in the midst of uh, another world empire, which is, uh, of course, the British Empire and its relation to the colonies. Uh, just touch a little bit on the, the cronyism that was going on uh, mostly in London at that time in, in relation to, you know, British policy toward, toward the colonies. Yeah. So at the, at the time when the uh, American colonies or some of them had started to be uh, founded, uh, the uh, <clears throat> uh, England was really under the, uh, the control of what I call the old order. So this combination of absolutism, the king's divine, right? He's always right. He's in his absolute power. Uh, mercantilism, so the granting of various privileges to businesses to uh, increase their loyalty to the king. And then feudalism, which is basically the king uh, divvies up land from new conquests to his favorite supporters. And the, the forces in, in England, think of uh, King James I and in uh, his, his various uh, henchmen, so to speak. They wanted to more or less uh, replicate that process in North America. So they wanted to grant out these large estates, these huge land grants, uh, create new forms of feudalism. They had previously done the same in Ireland after uh, England, basically over several hundred of years, basically conquered Ireland. And then they wanted to, after granting, giving out all these land grants, they wanted to enact various uh, uh, interventions, these mercantilist restrictions, benefiting English shipbuilders, uh, benefiting English manufacturers, making sure the colonies uh, exported goods at low prices to England and so on. Basically, their plan was to make North America a uh, just a raw um, export market. So we would uh, we would uh, export, of course, on English ships, not on French ships or colonial-made ships. Uh, lumber, um, cotton, uh, you know, uh, various other goods that we made, and then England would produce those, turn them into manufacturing goods, and then we would have to buy back clothes and uh, you know things you'd use for buildings, etc., from England. And that was basically. Uh, the strategy that what England was trying to do. The, the problem was, is that there was simply too much land to enforce feudalism. And over the 1600s, England was just preoccupied with civil wars, 
wars with other countries, etc., which uh, a lot of these regulations were in place, but they weren't actually enforced, or there was just a tremendous amount of of smuggling and, and dealings on the black market. So really, the colonies had been able to kind of flourish without um, any sort of strong oversight from the mother country. Yeah. So I think we should probably define cronyism. And I think it um, everybody kind of knows, but so the term crony, I think, just means like long-term friend or something like that. But cronyism is basically cutting special deals for friends, uh, cutting them in on government uh, work and contracts like that to enrich them uh, at uh, in ways that other people can't take advantage of. So through the monopolies and, and grants and, and things like that. And then crony capitalism is like what we talk about when that's like kind of just the day to day, you know, it's not like a side thing that happens once in a while with a corrupt, uh, you know, uh, a city politician or something like that, but like everybody's doing it. Business, it, certain segments of the business world are, are tied in with government and it just, it's a well uh, oiled machine that just keeps running like that. So I, I think it's, I think we libertarians kind of get the sense that, that there's always that element uh, in government at all. But like, I think even we libertarians have maybe a little bit of a, a soft spot or a blind spot for, um, the founders that, oh, they, for this brief moment, uh, there were guys who were, you know, really smart and had great character and really wanted to uh, protect the people's liberty. And to a certain extent, that's true. But uh, I kind of knew a little bit of this, but I, just from the very beginning of even in the decision to break away from uh, Britain up through the the period of the Articles of Confederation, that all of those things had an element of the cronyism side of things had an element on uh, uh, what we hear in school and what we think of as the, you know, the debate over ideas and things like that, which I think, well, some of that's genuine, but, you know, side by side with it is the part we don't get to hear about, which is the, the kind of the transfer of kind of how you describe it of the old order profiting off of it. And then the guys over here trying to maybe set up a new thing where they could profit from it. Do I kind of have that right? Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> everything from yeah, I, I thought that that was that was uh, all that was great. I, I you know, in terms of cronyism, just in general, uh, I preferred I used the term cronyism over crony capitalism. Although I was technically supposed to write a book on the history of crony capitalism, I just focused on cronies, really calling it that. Because right. yeah, like you said, it usually refers to kind of friends in government or, or sort of insiders, politically connected insiders are hiring just people close to you regardless of experience. So, oh, someone's got their cronies in office. And uh, really, I think it can refer to a, a lot of stuff much more broadly as, as other scholars uh, besides myself have done. And it's just a, it's all the special interest policies. And sometimes people call it crony capitalism. And I think it's broader than that because cronyism can certainly happen in socialist uh, governments. Of course, it really it, it's, it's particularly endemic there. And it also politicians can be crony. And I think sometimes the crony capitalism, it's sort of an in, subtle indictment of capitalism where it's really yeah. capitalism is separate. Cronyism is its own independent entity. Cronyism impinges on capitalism. Yeah. Uh, capitalism flourishes without government intervention. And 
you, you, you know, when we were looking at uh, cronyism in the in the United States or what became the United States, you, you had a lot of people. Really, it's this battle between the forces of liberty and the forces of power or cronyism where some Americans, they wanted to work within the British Empire. Uh, and then when that became just impossible and said, OK, we have to secede. Well, then they said, well, we just want to create our own old order empire, you know, things a little bit different maybe not a, you know, a monarch is blatant or, you know, just doing things on our own where we can control the tariffs, the subsidies, the land grants and, and so on. And, and this, uh, this, this continued into the, throughout the American revolution. And then uh, especially through the constitution, because as, as you mentioned, there is a, a bit of an illusion, especially among libertarians and, and conservatives, more broadly speaking, that, you know, you got the founding fathers believed in limited government. Some of them did. It's absolutely true. Some of them did. Now, some of those people weren't always great when they were in power. They got corrupted, but that's a whole, that's a separate story. But a lot of, uh, uh, you know, many of these American elites, they believed in basically cronyism. They wanted a strong government that could uh, provide them special privileges. And a big vehicle for accomplishing this was the Constitution. The Constitution was not designed to be a, to create a limited government document. I mean, excuse me, it was not designed to create a limited government. It was a document that was designed to maybe look like it was creating a limited government, but really just to f allow uh, various special interests to enrich themselves at the public's expense. This is why a lot of these forces of liberty, uh, the sort of the, the earlier libertarians, they fought against the Constitution yep. when it was uh, being ratified. Right. And so this is something that's very important. Now, the Constitution only got its sort of limited government position, it's limited government interpretation, once these, uh, the, 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 its former foes basically realized they had lost, the constitution was going to be a fact, it was going to exist, this is our new government, and then they try to strategically interpret it to basically make it into the government they want, right? And that's, yep. uh, in a sense, a, a 200 year battle. Right. Yeah. So talk about the evidence there is, because again, that's a, that what you just said is counter to what we learn in civics class and even what, you know, other historians uh, might say, because they kind of only look at the one level of it, but what maybe an example of something that motivated um, the people who really did push for the constitution like what was a, a particular area that they're like, well, we can't do this um, and and make money off this and, unless we uh, get the constitution approved. Yeah, um, that, that that's a uh, it's a great it's a great question. So there there were a lot of things motivating uh, various interests uh, who who wanted a stronger government, right? either protective tariffs, navigation acts, uh, restrictions for shipbuilders a strong military to open up the West and uh, as well as the Caribbean, uh, you know, and so on. The, the biggest thing, or one of the biggest things was uh, the government, there were a lot of interests who wanted the federal government or the Articles of Confederation, the Confederation Congress to have taxing power, right? It did not have taxing power. This was something that when the Articles of Confederation were, were created in 1781, after each state legislature had ratified it, they it didn't have taxing power. So it could only obtain money by basically getting more or less donations from states, right? And there were a lot of speculators, such as Robert Morris, who's basically uh, someone who Alexander Hamilton worked with. He was the main financier of the, the uh, 
Revolutionary War. He was this very wealthy Philadelphia merchant. Uh, him and his cadre, so to speak, had bought up tremendous amounts of the Revolutionary War debts, right? They had the, the, the government had given these to the poor farmer or the soldier risking life and limb. And then those guys uh, just sold them to speculators uh, at very depreciated rates. And these speculators wanted the government, the Confederation Congress, to basically pay them off at par value so they can make a huge killing. The issue is they didn't have any money to pay them, right? They needed right. taxing power. So a big motive behind the creation of the Constitution was to say, okay, uh, Congress automatically has taxing power. Before, in order to get taxing power, each state legislature would have to ratify an amendment. You'd have to have unanimity. In Rhode Island, in New York, on two separate occasions, basically blocked that. So instead, they say, well, uh, the, 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 the Congress is just two chambers. And it's just a simple majority. That's all they need to have uh, to raise taxes, whether it's uh, direct taxes, such as a tax on the uh, production in the, you know, of whiskey or the, the sale of whiskey, or it's a tariff, et cetera. So right off the bat, taxing power, which we assume is being, you know, a lot of people say is, it's indispensable for society, et cetera. Well, that's, that's false. Uh, but it was directly linked with cronyism. Uh, and because one of the first things the new government did uh, really, the first act was to raise taxes and raise revenue, and both of those measures benefited um, the domestic industry as well as shipbuilders. And then when Hamilton becomes Secretary of the Treasury, what does he do? He basically tries to fund all of the old debt at par value, benefiting all those speculators who bought up the securities in the 1780s. I mean, it right. really was quite an ingenious racket. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, when you think about it, you know, there was all kinds of monetary stuff going on in the with the continental congress and both the, the the congress itself and the state government so uh what you're saying is they would basically give ious to uh people who you know volunteered for the army or provided supplies or whatever and said well we'll pay you back at some point and so the people who held, held those were like eh, i don't know if they're ever going to pay me back so robert morris or somebody comes along and says well you've got Let's say you've got a hundred dollars, I'll give you fifty for it. And so that I, I guess that was the the. We, again, we hear a lot about the um, the you know assuming state debts. Uh, you do hear that in the civics class version of things, but not that aspect of the speculators. That basically they they took a big risk, and rather than let them take the haircut, so to speak, um, and just repudiate all that stuff or or go at it another way. Yeah. So that's, that was a, a, a prime thing about not only the constitution, but the, uh, the location of DC, right. So talk about that, um, that deal and Washington's uh, in particular, Washington's role in that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, we, we, we hear about the assumption of federal and state debts at the beginning of the, the uh, United States or the, you know, the, the modern United States under the constitution and, and usually the argument is that, well, we, we got to pay this. Otherwise, the poor farmer, the poor, poor soldier, the poor merchant, uh, they're going to be left uh, basically with the, with the empty bag and, and they're going to go bankrupt. And that, that's just simply not the case. It's that uh, a lot of this debt was bought up by speculators in many states in the 1780s, particularly those in the South, especially Virginia, uh, the Southern states, with the very important section exception of South Carolina, had uh, defaulted on its debt. Uh, 
right? So they said, all right, we can't pay some of this. We basically have to cut our expenditures. Uh, even repudiation was argued to be an option uh, in, in some discussion. And it was mainly in the North that those states were just raising taxes uh, to fund this debt that mainly taxes fell on poor farmers. Uh, this led to the infamous Shays Rebellion and all of that stuff. And then Hamilton comes around and he says, well, we're going to assume not only the article's old uh, uh, federal debt, uh, but also the uh, the state debts. And this was very controversial because it was seen as, well, this would just uh, basically benefit a bunch of speculators, which is exactly what it did. Uh, Hamilton's goal was to basically bind the rich to the government uh, by self-interest. And this was something that even alienated Madison, uh, who had previously agreed with Hamilton on this. And Madison's uh, switch isn't as noble as some might consider it to be. Basically, Virginia had already paid off its debts. And yeah. Madison had been seen as, as a congressman taking too many positions that was favorable to the North. He was up for re-election soon. He had to at least show some sort of Southern inclination. So he wanted a mercantilist system that benefited Virginia or the South. And he said that this was too pro-North. Um and this created loggerhead, you know, a big, a big log jam. You know, they were at loggerheads in in Congress. And then Jefferson came back from from France. He basically learns he's Secretary of State, and like so many deals in our nation's history, uh, mm-hmm. things are, are settled over over dinner. Um, and basically, the agreement was, okay, we will. Uh, Hamilton gets what he wants. He says, all right, the the debts will be assumed at par value, which will benefit Robert Morris. Uh, even his assistant secretary of the treasury, William Dorr, it will benefit his father-in-law. <laughs> so it's always good to make sure uh, the relatives are, are, are happy, Philip Schuyler. And in return, the Capitol, which was in New York at the time, will go to Philadelphia for 10 years, so a little bit farther south. But uh, the permanent Capitol, which will basically be open for business in 1800, the year 1800, uh, will be located somewhere along the Potomac within this very narrow boundary. Uh, and our first president, George Washington, will be able to determine where the capital goes within this narrow boundary. So basically, uh, it was it was a corrupt bargain. It was, look, we'll benefit the rich, um, and resistance to that will dissipate as long as there's a capital sort of closer to the south. And that's, well, that's how it- Washington, D.C. came about. But it wasn't just pride and convenience. Like when reading about this, I always assumed that like, oh, Virginia just wanted to, you know, assert the fact that they're a major player in this and not have to, you know, take the stagecoach that uh, far up to New York or whatever. But like Washington and others, like they had already or, or soon after bought a bunch of land in and around what became D.C. and like like made 10 times their money or whatever. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's like so shocking because yeah. you, and cause again, even libertarians are like, Oh, Washington wasn't so great, but at least he was honest. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Washington at least is, did not become a dictator, but most of his other policies were, were pretty bad. Cause the, the, the thing is uh, Washington had always, uh, he had, he had land near Alexandria, right. Uh, he still have Mount Vernon. You can go to DC He's got the man has a highway uh, yep. still still for him. There's a massive amount of land there. And during the subsequent discussion over the bank bill, right, the famous uh, bank debate, uh, do we create a central bank? Hamilton wants a central bank. 
uh, Jefferson as uh, no, and they both give Washington their 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 messages. Jefferson uh, basically says the bank's unconstitutional. He's basically trying to use the Constitution, turn it into a limited government document. Hamilton says, oh, it's it's in the necessary and proper, uh, you know, the general welfare, all that stuff, which reading the debates in the Constitutional Convention is what many of the people uh, basically said. It's like, oh, yeah, we want them in these vague clauses because that way the public won't know too much about this. It's easy to just put everything in through the back door, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't know this, that Washington was actually kind of leaning towards Jefferson. He was thinking that, you know, maybe we don't give Hamilton this bank, uh, especially because the bank would be located in Philadelphia. And then maybe that means the capital is going to remain permanently in Philadelphia, not just 10 years. And instead, um, Hamilton had an ace up his sleeve because Washington at the same time wanted to choose, he was going to choose to announce the site of the Capitol, but he wanted to move it out of the boundary that was um, uh, stipulated in the so-called Residence Act. And he wanted to move it, as you said, just in a very blatant instance of cronyism that you go, oh, founding father, the guy on the $1 <laughs> bill basically said, I mean, Washington was smart. He knew DC would just have atrocious traffic. So he said, no, I want to you know, move this thing closer to my property. Uh, in Alexandria, uh, you know, it turned out to totally boost the, the value of his property over time and, uh, you know, in, in the surrounding uh, environment. And the Federalists in Congress only agreed to allow, uh, only agreed to amend the Residence Act if Washington did not veto the bank bill, yep. right? And that was basically uh, where, why Washington is in the D.C.'s in the specific spot it is. And why we had a central bank is that, uh, yeah, Washington needed a little, a little something to, you know, he needed a little butter on his bread. And, right? and, and he was like one of the richest men in America, right? I think he was previously rich because like, didn't his father or brother like kind of had a lot of land and made whiskey and stuff. But so he was already came into it rich, but left and much richer. I mean, he, right. Yeah. He, he, he was very rich. Um, he also was one of the people who bought a lot, who had a lot of federal debt. So the debt oh, okay. assumption of the year prior uh, was a nice boost to the retirement account, so to speak. I mean, Washington died shortly after he had left office. He had died in, I want to say, like uh, 1799 or very, very late, or at least 1800. But, um, you know, he, uh, yeah, he, he was rich and he was one of the people benefiting from uh, the, uh, the 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 federalist policies uh, mm -hmm. so he was he, he was a southerner and there were uh, other southerners benefiting from this it wasn't strictly a north south battle south carolina uh, a lot of people don't know it's sort of uh, later in american history has this mantle of being you know it has the it has the uh, cares on its shoulders being a very states rights um, uh, region but early on it was staunchly federalist Yep. Um, all the, the the slave owners were very pro big government there, and one of the reasons why it was so federal is because <laughs> South Carolina didn't pay off its debt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they wanted a bailout, right? Yep. In Charleston, a lot of the the merchants there, etc. So yeah, there's there's always uh, there's always sorted interests involved, and it, it's it's just fascinating um, looking at these interests, especially early on in our nation's founding. Yeah. So as Austrians, we're obviously very uh, 
interested in uh, central banking. I want to get to that in just one second, but I, I've never had uh, a particular part of the Constitution uh, adequately explained to me. I don't quite understand it. It's Article 1, Section 2 about the taxation, and mm -hmm. it says rep representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included in the union, according to the respective numbers. And then it goes into the who counts as a person, which is a, a conversation for another time. But mm -hmm. what does it mean? So like what's direct taxes and what's the apportionment thing? Because I always thought like a direct tax, like you said, was like a like a tariff or like a tax on the sale of whiskey or something. But what does the apportionment have to do uh, in that mechanism? I don't quite get that. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. So one, a direct tax, it's actually, that's a good question in itself. A direct tax is, <laughs> it wasn't always discussed. So the idea is, are you directly hitting someone's income or, or someone's wealth? A tariff is seen as a indirect tax because you don't have to actually buy the good, right? If there's a tariff okay. on, you know, uh, British shirts, then you can avoid that. You can still suffer. Uh, but you you can avoid that by paying for more expensive American clothes, right? Something yep. like that. And so when it comes to the direct tax, this is referring to, at least at the time, property taxes, um, certain excise taxes, right? Taxes directly on the on the on the uh, on the sale of a good or uh, from you know a, a tax on land values and or building values, et cetera. What that clause became most famously associated with is, of course, the income tax, right? The income tax, um, which was enacted briefly in the Civil War, and then it was briefly, so they took it away after the Civil War, and then in the 1890s, it was brought back. The Supreme Court knocked it down as unconstitutional, and then an amendment was created to basically serve, you know, uh, circumvent the Supreme Court's restrictions, which we'll, we'll get into. And it, it relates to this apportionment issue. Uh, basically, it's kind of... It, 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 without getting too much into it, 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 it basically means that the the has to be in some way linked to the actual size of the state in the population of the state. And the way the income tax was originally construed during the Civil War, this wasn't an issue um, because no one cared about it. It was just wartime crisis, whatever, you know, et cetera. Right. And then the apportionment issue was kind of brought back in the 1890s. The Supreme Court... Uh, when they uh, the income tax was created in the Wilson Wilson Gorm tariff of uh, 1894, a lot of rich people were very upset about that, and then they basically they were able to get it through the Supreme Court that oh this apportionment issue this is uh, based off of off of wealth so most of the tax would be paid by wealthier people in New York in New Jersey right where there's a lot of wealth and so therefore the tax has to be struck down as unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court ruled uh, with them. And then uh, basically this led to the push to uh, um, uh, create a, uh, an amendment that more or less got rid of that apportionment issue. So it doesn't have to be related to population at all. You can raise taxes uh, even if most of the people are going to be from one state and not okay. another uh, and so on. Right. So, and so yeah. So it, so it basically – it's saying that um, that the tax because that the amount of money raised from whatever tax it would be would have to be amount to about the same per person across the country. Sounds like uh, 
Yeah, roughly, or it would have to be because it's 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 a strictly it's the uh, uh, in proportion to the state, the population okay. in the states, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so the even idea the, is yeah, gone. Well, even there, I'm sorry to interrupt, but even right there, like it, there's all kinds of wiggle room and and uh, opportunity for horse trading and stuff there, right? So it's not yeah. what I thought was was maybe like a very specific legal distinction. So even there, there's there's room for interpretation, which is one of those things that they uh, intentionally put in the con Constitution, necessary and proper, general welfare, all that stuff, which is all the other stuff is very specific, but then they have these few little pockets that you can drive a truck through. Right, exactly. So the the the, the apportionment issue where they, you don't want a direct tax where it basically one state ends up paying a disproportional amount compared to other states. Uh, during the Constitutional Convention, all the, the the various representatives or the delegates from the states, even though the, the, lion's, the lion's share of them were federalists, they were very big government, they wanted a stronger government. The, the big battles at the Constitutional Convention were more about, okay, who's going to be in control of the government? So how is representation in the House going to be decided in the Senate? Yep. Is it going to be based off population or is it going to be based off equality, right? Uh, or just, you know, each state gets the same amount. Well, the bigger states obviously want, uh, you know, to have more representation than the smaller states, right? You think of the states in New England. And so a lot of uh, when, when the discussion of taxes were brought up, it was kind of linked into this where they didn't want, uh, you know, each the representatives from particular states didn't want uh, their people to get socked with the bill, basically. So it's sort of like spread it out among, um, among um, you, know, uh, you know, across the country or make it so you can't levy a tax that discriminates uh, primarily against New York or New Jersey or Massachusetts yeah. or Virginia or, or something like that. So it was all, it was all kind of linked into that. And, and it sort of fell out of, it, 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 it wasn't brought up so much because, direct taxes after the the, 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 the whiskey tax um, and after um, sort of the controversy regarding that, you know, we didn't really utilize direct taxes so much except during the War of 1812 and you know, the Civil War. And it was always, those were always justified. Well, it's just wartime crisis. Yeah. No, no, no rules apply. And we got most of our money through land sales and especially through tariff revenue. Right. And okay. so this, this, this kind of this technicality was only brought up uh, kind of in the 1890s. OK, so the land sales are basically they get they um, claim land or get it through treaties from other countries and then sell it, uh, a port, you know, split it up and sell it to homesteaders, basically. Right. Is that how it goes or not homesteaders? Because like land speculators would buy it and they would buy it from the government. Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the way the uh, the land sales occurred is the government would just claim ownership to land, regardless of whether or not they had homesteaded it. It was just, well, we had conquered this, or well, we say this is our land, um, and if there's a conflict with another country, well, then you know you're gonna you're gonna um, uh, get out the weapons and you know, pull off the gloves, so to speak, or take off the gloves. Uh, and yeah, so they they would have this land, and then they would either. Uh, providing a grant to a speculator or they would just uh, sell it to speculators who in turn then sold it to homesteaders. Right. And, and yep. we think of a lot of this land, uh, it's not talked about in this book so much because it relates to later in American history was through say railroad land grants where the government just yep. gave literally millions, 
of, of acres of land to various uh, railroads that in turn would then sell it to farmers. Many of these farmers were already on the land that they had said, hey, this is mine. And then they say, well, no, now you got to pay <laughs> us money. Right. Yeah. And that naturally ticks some people off. And, and not a lot of people know this. We'll have to save this for the volume two of the book. But um, uh, there was a particularly famous person who was a, uh, a lawyer for a lot of those railroad companies. And that was Lincoln, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Lincoln. Yeah. Lincoln. Well, was yeah, we, a- we got we got to hold that because uh, that that's uh you get me on Lincoln. We'll, we'll be here all day, but right, so, right. okay. Okay. Let's talk about the, the, the whole, the different central banks and we're going to have to gloss over a lot because man, there's just so much in here. That's what I like about it is that goes, um, it, it goes, it doesn't go slow. It, it, it very thorough and all these little side issues that do get glossed over in other histories, you do get to, you know, the nuts and bolts of like, okay, who, uh, you know, who had the financial interest in this and all that. So it's, it's very, it's fascinating. So the, the different, um, uh, banks of the United States, Bank of North America, like maybe try to, con- we might have to condense it into just what's the, what was the whole purpose of the banks, which ones succeeded, um, how did people, those of uh, people who were against the banks, how did they fight it? Because that, that was a, a big issue up through the rest, uh, 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 well, really through the, uh, as soon as the Articles of Confederation and, and even a little before that, the whole notion of a bank was one of, if not the biggest sort of domestic uh, issues. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, central banking, uh, it's, it's part and parcel of American history. You first had the Bank of North America, so just to go through everything uh, quickly. Uh, it was created in the Articles of Confederation. It was actually justified by the Articles General Welfare Clause. Uh, this was pushed for by Robert Morris, that Philadelphia merchant I mentioned. Um, and basically this bank was going to loan money to the government, which would then be able to use this money to grant out wartime uh, contracts to various munitions purchasers, et cetera, which coincidentally, one of them was Willing and Morris, the company that Robert Morris had basically helped create. Right. And as the president of this organization was the president of bank of the, the uh, bank of North America, excuse me, was Thomas Willing. Well, Robert Morris's business partner, but would you look at that? Um, and the bank of North America had a a charter from uh, Congress and also had it got a charter from the Pennsylvania uh, state legislature. These were basically restrictive licenses, giving it a monopoly. And people fought it by basically trying to get rid of the charter. The Bank of North America uh, had lost its federal charter and then it kind of had to fight back and forth for its, its state charter, right? Um, due to various, uh, the, the sort of the Pennsylvania radicals, kind of the libertarians of the day trying to take away the charter. Then we go to the bank, uh, the first bank of the United States, and this was more or less a project of Hamilton. Morris was also involved. Thomas Wilson, uh, excuse me, Thomas uh, uh, Willing was also the the president of this uh, of this organization. And this was mainly uh, the stock was uh, held by a lot of congressmen as well as other holders of uh, uh, the federal debt, etc. And this was once again very linked, kind of with Robert Morris's business enterprises and what the federalists were doing and, and, and all of that good stuff. And uh, the sort of the, the, the Jeffersonian Republicans, by the end of the decade, 
They were trying to fight it by getting uh, Congress to sell its ownership in the bank, um, which had already been occurring a little bit earlier for a variety of reasons. And then when Jefferson became president, he wanted to get rid of the bank, but then it just kind of, this is part of one of the issues, the weaknesses of Jefferson. It basically just let it stay and it sort of survived until its charter was narrowly uh, voted down uh, in 1811 by none other than um, uh, Clinton, than uh, George Clinton, who's the famous anti-federalist governor of New York back in the day. He had become vice president, so he had the tie-breaking vote. Uh, then we go to the second bank of the United States, which was created in 1816. And uh, this bank was really a creation. It was promoted by uh, Stephen Girard and John Jacob Astor, these various prominent merchants, they held a lot of debt from the War of 1812, and they wanted the bank to then buy this debt. And uh, they were behind the creation of a bank. It's very similar to the first bank of the United States. Uh, the issue is, well, that bank actually went away. And this is more due to the success or the strength of the Jacksonians as opposed to the Jeffersonians, where they used the executive branch as a way of striking down cronyism, and in particular, sort of climaxed, uh, the, the climax of this was when Andrew Jackson vetoed the uh, recharter of the Second Bank of the United States, so uh, taking away its recharter. And so we actually got rid of uh, the central bank, um, and so that was sort of a big victory. But in each of those institutions, there's you know, we could talk about them more, there's always a special interest, there's always some financier involved, there's always people looking to benefit, and uh, that's exactly why those institutions were created, to benefit those special interests who have been lobbying for them. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about kind of the that period right before, uh, you know, kind of the John Quincy Adams, uh, Andrew Jackson period, kind of after the, you know, the somewhat, uh, you know, the the disappointing Ultimately, I think disappointing Jeffersonians, which is, of course, Jefferson, Madison and, and Monroe, then I think and I may be a little bit off on this. So correct me if I'm wrong. But like the whole, um, you know, Henry Clay, John Quincy Adams, those guys were to me, they've always seemed like the first group of American politicians that were explicitly like saying yes, we want an energetic government. Like before the, the guys were like, at least, you know, even though they might have, you know, they, in other words, the guys before talked a good game, but like with the, uh, I think they called it the national system was their idea of uh, how government should act. And it, to me, it was the first, or if it wasn't the first, it was the kind of a very energetic step up into, okay, we want the federal government to be actually doing a lot of, uh, project. So talk about how that got started and, and how the, you know, the bank and taxes and all that uh, were wrapped up in uh, what they were trying to do. Yeah. So th those guys, uh, Henry Clay, John Quincy Adams, even earlier on, uh, John C. Calhoun, yeah. uh, those were the national Republicans. They'd started off as national Republicans. These kind of like the big government culmination of the Jeffersonian Republican Party. It started off small government, but then it just became very, very big government, more or less supporting the old Hamiltonian uh, program. And the, the, uh, the, the National Republicans, they were later known as Whigs uh, for, for a little bit different reason. They had espoused what was the called the American system, which is basically like this, uh, the Hamilton stuff on steroids. 
uh, they would probably say it the same way, which is, okay, we got to have a central bank and it's going to loan money to, um, uh, to, to the various uh, northern industries, right, and the northern cities. And it's also going to create a uniform uh, currency. It's going to get rid of all these state banks and all this competition, all these state bank notes, excuse me, and all this competition, et cetera. Uh, we need to have a protective tariff for uh, the, the northern industry and to allow northern industry to grow. And then we're going to use the revenue from the protective tariff as well as revenue from these uh, the high prices for land, right? So make it hard for uh, homesteaders to afford the land. Uh, we're going to use this, this money, and then we're going to construct internal improvements to basically mm -hmm. bind the country together, right? So we're going to create this national uh, economy. Uh, and what really was kind of more of an alliance with the North in the West to try to screw the South, at least, because the South would sort of be stuck. Um, it didn't want the internal improvements, and it would be stuck uh, with the the high tariff, right? Um, and then the South, for a variety of reasons, tried to make an alliance with the West and, and, and so on. But that was the basic gist of the American system, which is more or less, let's just grant a bunch of mercantilist uh, policies that benefit various special interests, um, and uh, let's just uh, cloak it in some nice, uh, attractive language of benefiting the public interest and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk a little bit about Jackson. Like, uh, you know, we, uh, again, libertarians often say, you know, congratulate him for, um, you know, vetoing the bank. And those were supposedly his last words on his deathbed, where at least I killed the bank or something like that. But um, he had, he was also, he was very consciously, you know, that thought seen as a Democrat, right? So like he, in contrast to the, a lot of others at that time, he appealed to the common man and all that. So like how, what were his other policies, uh, even though he kind of was right on the bank, what, what, what else uh, was the, the Jackson presidency? What was going on then? Yeah, so Andrew Jackson uh, really was Martin Van Buren, his his uh, New York New York uh, senator who basically you know, worked with uh, Jackson, became his vice president, then became president after him. Um, uh, Jackson uh, Van Buren had founded the Democratic Party, which is the same party um, as as today. The, the The Republican Party came a little bit later in 1854, and and they they were arguing that well, yeah, this is part of the 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 the, the idea of more people should be allowed to vote. We got to expand the franchise. It's the common person fighting against the special interests. There are strengths and weaknesses to that. I'd say from our perspective, we have to recognize the time was uh, times were a little different. So certainly back then, or at least up to that point, democracy was much more of a uh, of a of a tool for liberty than now, partially because the democracy is different where the democracy channeled through state legislatures, right? As opposed to now, basically the states are weakened. It's just kind of like a free for all. And then you, you know, it's the, the people in the, um, the, the federal government, the federal government uses democracy to weaken the state legislatures, which is a problem. Um, you know, as, 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 as people from our perspective would say. Um, and so Jackson, um, so there, there's sort of strengths and weaknesses with that, but Jackson and, and, and Van Buren, they wanted to more or less get rid of the American system. So they wanted to veto uh, the, 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 the central bank. They wanted to get rid of it and basically separate the government from the banking system by making it so 
the treasury only accepted a specie, right? Uh, which is more or less what happened. It came about in the independent treasury uh, under Van Buren and then uh, James K. Polk. They wanted to get rid of uh, the national debt. So they wanted to pay off the national debt. And then once that happened, they wanted to lower tariffs. And they also wanted to stop the United States uh, government from embarking upon internal improvements. They wanted to have private enterprise do that or, or bring it down on the state level. And all that stuff was great. Uh, the Jacksonians, of course, were not perfect. Um, one of the, the the great things about them was they wanted to do all this through the executive branch instead of going through Congress, which is actually really so far the only effective way to kind of accomplish reform. But this then increased the power of the executive branch and it increased the potential for the uh, people in the executive branch to be corrupted by said power. And then this led to sort of bellicosity and aggressiveness in other areas later on. Uh, one of the first is the policy of Indian removal, uh, which is something that's very un misunderstood, but uh, we could still say, you know, that was obviously a big weakness. Uh, but then it, uh, Van Buren and Jackson ended up splitting under the question of whether or not to annex Texas, right? this big slaveholding state that annexation would almost surely lead to war with Mexico. And Van Buren uh, and Thomas Hart Benton, a, a senator from Missouri, said, no, we don't want to do this. Andrew Jackson initially had sided with Van Buren, but by the time the issue became prominent in the 1840s, Jackson and then James K. Polk, uh, both of uh, which from Tennessee, they said, no, we need to do this. And that led to this big fissure in the Democratic Party and, of course, war with Mexico. So Jackson and the Jacksonians, I would say, probably the most effective libertarian political party to actually enact change, not only win office, but enact meaningful change that lasts for a decent amount of time uh, in American history. Okay. That's uh that's pretty interesting. Um, uh, I think, yeah, you may have a, you may have a case there, um, which is so disappointing that uh, uh, there's, there's lots in this book too, in cronyism about kind of the, the failed promise in many ways of the, of the Jeffersonian eight years. You think that you get the guy who wrote the declaration of independence in for eight years, there'd be a lot better. And you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but uh, so you got to read the book to, to get uh, Patrick's take on that. Cause we don't have a whole lot of time left, but one thing you, I had a couple other questions, but you said something I think is more interesting. You said the executive branch has uh, been, I don't know if you meant up until the time we were just talking about, or even up until today, the only way to get reform on on some of these things is that just because of like the public choice thing that the legislature is too beholden to special interests uh, is uh what what made you what makes you make that statement and why why is the executive branch uh better if i understood you correctly than the legislature in that regard yes that's a, it's a great question so early on in american history you think of the colonial era, the executive branch was seen as the, the agent of tyranny. This was the, you had the, the royally appointed governors in their council, and they would fight the democratically elected assembly. So it was sort of the legislature, the era of, of Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, when he was growing up, is this is how you fight. You, this is how you fight against tyranny, the stuff coming down from Great Britain. You, you've got the legislative branch to actually sort of challenge things and, and so on. And the executive veto, uh, which started off in the colonial era, 
was designed with a mind uh, with, with uh, in mind to, to, to stop these types of reforms where let's say uh, the legislature passes a bill getting rid of, of some tax, then the royally appointed governor can just say, nope, veto, right? And it's like, okay, well, th- th- there's that. Uh, as time went on, more and more Americans, especially after the end of the Jeffersonian Revolution, so by the 1810s, 1820s, they realized that they weren't really going to get reform done through Congress for the reasons you mentioned, basically the public choice reasons, uh, they're fixated on elections, uh, beholden to special interests, uh, they're not going to vote against stuff that hurts them, et cetera. So then the strategy became, all right, well, why don't we use the executive branch to then fight back on some of this legislative cronyism? Let's transform the veto, which was Federalists originally designed to kind of attack reform. Let's now use it in a way that actually accomplishes reform. Well, uh, Jackson is going to veto a bill because uh, it's spending too much, or he's going to veto a bill because he thinks the bank is unconstitutional. And this was actually supported by a lot of uh, sort of constitutionalists because they had realized, you know, you got to switch tactics up. And this was the strategy in the ideas that, well, you use the executive as sort of a way of attacking cronyism. Now, there's strength to that. There's also weaknesses. You basically increase the power of the president or the governor, which makes them more susceptible to being corrupted, but nothing's perfect. And unfortunately, that also happened. But it seems that at least just in terms of actually getting stuff done throughout American history for about a period of 15 years or so, it was a long period when you think about it, but it was successive successive years of just whittling away, vetoing uh, monetary cronyism, vetoing government you know, spending cronyism, tariff cronyism, et cetera, that the Jacksonians were able to basically chip away at the American system, which uh, you know we would think is is in a sense that's the best we could hope for. Imagine if we just had you know we were able to transport Ron Paul into the presidential office or you know the White House or someone else. Uh, all they could do is in a sense try and bring back as many troops as possible and yep. veto stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like that's in a nutshell. That would be what the presidency would look like. Right. Yep. And that's so far, that's kind of at least the only like the best thing that's worked in American history. And and even Grover Cleveland, who's seen as sort of a, a, a limited government president, which he was in the late 1800s. What did he mainly do? He basically vetoed stuff. He spent all most of his presidency just vetoing pensions bills uh, for yep. Civil War veterans. And it was just he was very influenced by the, uh, the, the, the is in that Jacksonian tradition as well. Yeah. Um, let's wrap it up here in a second. Uh, man, there's so many other questions, which is why, you know, I really think people should, uh, should read this book and it's kind of set up in a way that you can read it in chunks. Um, uh, it's laid out very logically and, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I, I really, really enjoy it. There's a lot of stuff that I, uh, learned that I didn't know. What, is there something that, that uh, either a person or a concept or something that going in that you didn't know much about that that really opened your eyes or changed your view of something. What what did you learn from from writing this? 
Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a great question. Uh, in a sense, hopefully I learned something. Um, I, it was basically that executive, uh, that, okay. that, that executive question, actually looking at the evidence, looking at how people argued this and yeah, they, it really just the, it kind of links it with the overall strategic interpretation of the constitution that the people who were uh, previously against the constitution started to support the constitution when they realized that this is their best shot at sort of enacting change is to try to say things are unconstitutional and then the same people who are very pro reform through the legislative branch then turned around to support reform through the executive branch. It's all strategy, yeah. right? Uh, these politicians back in the day, the, the limited government founding fathers, at least those that were limited government, um, they they believed in strategy. You do what you do to win, right? That's ultimately what it comes down to. So yeah. you want to dress up your argument as nice as possible, but you're going to do what you can. You're going to interpret it something the way you can. Uh, if it's going to further your goals. And so I'd say that's that kind of is 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 a big thing that I sort of uh, learned, at least just kind of how the strategy plays a role and how uh, many of our the founding fathers and Jeffersonians and Jacksonians and anti-federalists, et cetera, how how they viewed reform and how to accomplish it. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I that's one thing I get frustrated uh, with about uh, conservatives and some libertarians is they they think and I say this a lot, so people might be tired of hearing me say it, but like they, they look at it like, Hey, this is civics class. And if we play by the rules and Hey, look, the constitution, it says right there, they kind of, they kind of ignore what you're saying is that there are these other interests that it doesn't really matter what the constitution says because people will just twist it to, to mean uh, what they want it to mean. And so you kind of have to, in other words, arguing um, uh, with someone over a constitutional thing who doesn't believe in the same things we believe as libertarians, like, it's not like a magic bullet that's just going to get them to change their mind. Like, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. I, I was I misunderstood the Second Amendment all along, right? right. It's, uh, it, it's, there's no, there's no shortcut here. There's always going to be people who want to take control of, um, whoever is uh, taxing and spending. Um, and that's, that's why we have such a big job as libertarians. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. It kind of reminds me of when Republicans, they, uh, I guess they, you know, they, when they won the house and they said, we're going to read out loud every word of the constitution. It's kind of like, right. Oh boy, right. Right. No, this is it. <laughs> right. This is the, this is the beginning, you know, this is the beginning of, of, of something big, right. It's like that, that will change people's minds. Yeah. 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 No, you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so we're going to get to see uh, those of us in the Mises caucus. Uh, uh, we're not exactly sure which ones we think we know, but before we announce, uh, uh, we're getting ready to announce all the you know exact dates and of all the uh, take human action tour stops. But we think you're going to be able to join us for at least a couple of those. So yep. I'm looking forward to that. Tell people how they can uh, get this book, connect with you, um, you know, uh, just find out what you're doing right now. Uh, uh, the the time for plugs, as we always get to at the end of the show. Yeah, absolutely. So you can get the book Cronyism. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's real easy to get on Amazon. There's a hardcover. There's paperback. There's Kindle. There's audiobook. Um, you know all that. So you 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 can get those. Uh, you can get cronies in a variety of formats, and you can follow me. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, particularly Twitter. 
uh, Dr. Patrick Newman. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can follow my tweets there. And that, those are basically the main ways uh, that you can catch up with uh, what I'm doing. Great. Uh, we'll have all that on uh, show notes page, decentralizedrevolution.com slash 97. Uh, when is, uh, uh, is volume two your next project? Do you have a date on that yet? Or are you going to do something else in between? Yeah, volume two is my next project. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm actually almost done with the progressive era. And it's, it's about 230-ish pages right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the plan is sometime in, in 2024. That's that's okay. the plan. So it will be a little bit, but as time goes on, I'll be increasingly talking about uh, the ideas that uh, I'm gonna that the book's gonna cover. All right, Patrick, it's a pleasure to see you again, and I, I hope I'll be able to be at one of the stops of the Take Human Action Tour and uh, shake your hand in person. And thank you for all all your time. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Patrick Newman for his time and wisdom. Uh, and uh, for all his great work, uh, not only of his own, but of uh, what he's done with uh, Murray Rothbard and getting that fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty out there for all of us to read. He has really done so much great work. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, with Patrick. Speaking of another guy who does great work, Gene Epstein wants me to remind you that I hope this episode is out like a day or so before January 26th. That's when the Soho Forum debate on the topic of whether or not to end the Federal Reserve is going on. Uh, Lawrence White is the professor of economics at George Mason University. He is taking the anti-Federal Reserve site or anti-Federal Reserve position and uh, debating him is Frederick Mishkin, who apparently is a Pretty uh, heavy hitter on the other side of things. He's a professor at Columbia's Grad School of Business. So that's at the Soho Forum. I think it takes place live on January 26th, so you can check it out then. Um, or uh, I know that uh, Gene puts it out in various ways um, after that. But uh, please do what you can to go by the Soho Forum and support Gene. Thanks to my co-producer, Simon Kalpin. And thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And of course, we need you to subscribe to our email list. And if you can, give to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com. And we need you to share, rate, review, and subscribe to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.